morning, everybody. Thanks, worship team. I love them. I said in the first service, it really helps me because um, I had not anticipated how difficult it would be to have kind of an empty room that you're teaching to. I have my little smiley cutout, Fred, here attached to the camera, uh, and that reminds me to look over there. But I am so thankful for the worship team to, to be here and let, give me somebody that can give me some um, reaction and just uh, help me with that energy because it's, it's weird. I'm not going to lie. It's weird. And then I wonder for the worship team how weird it is for them when they are worshiping and they're watching me explore the space throughout the whole sanctuary as I'm worshiping uh, with them. It's going to be hard for me to keep myself just in front of my chair when we're back in the room. So if you see me start to, to go rogue, just know that it's just a joyful time to be able to worship. And I'm so happy to be able to do that with you guys today. So as Pastor Bob said, um, I'm teaching in Hosea today, and I'm going to start with some historical and cultural bits and pieces just to set the scene. So you should have your Bible with you, your journal. I'm going to give you some references to help you do some further reading because it's important to be able to, if you have questions and desire to know more about the surrounding stories, that you know where to look. So just have those ready. So here are my bits and pieces to get us started. Hosea is written between 790 and 710 BC. Given the poetic writing style uh, of Hosea and the complicated imagery that he uses, we are going to assume that Hosea was well off, that he was well educated and well off, which is a stark contrast, contrast to Amos, uh, where Bob taught on last weekend. Amos was a shepherd, he was not well educated, two very different people. And I wanted to point that out because I think that it is encouraging to know that God uses very different people to reach very different people. He can use anyone as long as they are obedient and willing to say yes to what he has asked them to do and asked them to share. Hosea overlaps Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. They're contemporary prophets. Hosea's prophecy was to the northern kingdom of Israel this is about 200 years after Israel broke into two kingdoms, a northern and southern kingdom. And the setting is just before Israel is going to be exiled to Assyria by God. And they, they don't know this, but that's what's about to happen. There is physical prosperity for some, great physical prosperity. There is a big gap between the very rich and the very poor and not much in the middle there. But those that are uh, experiencing this physical prosperity, their spiritual condition is a disaster. Really, everybody's spiritual condition in this, it's so messed up. And, and God goes to Hosea and says, you know, I want you to use your life as an illustration. And I'm just going to tell you, if God ever comes to you and says those words, buckle up. Because... Um, who could have foreseen what this would mean for him? And why would he even do that? But if you think about it, there's so much that can be complicated to understand. If somebody tells you a theoretical story, what does that mean to you? But if you see somebody living something out, something that is reasonable for you to understand and wrap your head around, 
then it becomes real. It becomes more tangible. This story meets us and the Israelites where they are as humans. So God lays out this plan for Hosea and just talk about an act of obedience. Uh, I think about how I complain about some of the little things I feel God calls me to do that might be inconvenient or out of my wheelhouse. And then I look at this and what Hosea was obedient to. So we start in Hosea 1, verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea marries Gomer knowing full well that she's going to cheat on him that she's going to be unfaithful and that she's going to bear some children out of that unfaithfulness. He goes in there knowing that that's what's going to happen. And as we drop down to verse three, Hosea bears this first child and it's set, oh, I'm sorry, Gomer. Sorry about that. Hosea marries Gomer. Make sure I'm getting that straight, knowing that she's going to be unfaithful. And Gomer bears this first child. And it says Gomer gives this Hosea this son. So we're going to just extrapolate that since it says that Gomer gave Hosea the son, that this one does actually belong to Hosea. And God is the one that directs the naming on these children. And the first son, God says, will be named Jezreel, for he is going to punish, for he, being God, is going to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders committed in Jezreel. So for those of you who would like to know the story behind that, the, the story behind those murders, your reference is 2 Kings chapter 9. So just write that down so you can read about that later. And then we drop down to verse 6, and it says that Gomer has a daughter. But it doesn't say that Gomer gives Hosea a daughter. So we're going to come from the, the angle that this is from her prostitution. And God directs the naming of the daughter to be Lo-Ruhama. And I apologize if I am not pronouncing that correctly, meaning not loved. For he, again, this being God, will no longer show love to the people of Israel. And then in verse 8, a son, who also we believe is born from this adultery, named Lo-Ami, not my people. For Israel is not his people, and he is not their God. Now think about as parents how much time we take when we are coming up with a name for our child. We want it to be meaningful. We want it to speak life. We want to make sure there's no weird nicknames that are going to pop out of the woodwork. And then to be told that your children, that is going to be their names and what those signify, that's pretty dark in that moment. But God is so amazing. He needs us to understand the illustration. He needs us to understand why what is happening is happening. But he always wants us also to understand his love and the hope that we have in him. So we go to verse 10 in chapter 1, and I'm just going to read it to you. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. 
what a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. In that day, you will call your brothers on me, my people, and you will call your sisters, Ruhamah, the ones I love. So right is when we are feeling, oh, this is heavy. God's like, wait, I, I need you to really hear my heart. I love you. And then we move into chapter two. And as we do, Gomer's adultery elicits that emotional response from us as humans for Hosea's position. And remember, this is an illustration of God's position with Israel. How God feels when we do these things to him. What would be our reaction as humans if Hosea was our friend and we saw this happening to him? What would we say? dude, you need to drop Gomer like a hot potato and walk away. You need to be done with that. That's not fair. That's not right. She's taken your gifts and she's offered them to Baal. It's not right. But wait, isn't that exactly what Israel had done? They took the beautiful good gifts that God had blessed them with, the unending love, selfless love, and they were just giving it away. They were just giving it away. In chapter two, verse six, for this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. Now, when Hosea blocks Gomer's path, it isn't to punish her. It isn't to do anything weird. It's to protect her from surrounding temptations, to keep her in a safe place to not be tempted by those things around her, by those other lovers. I heard a teaching one time that has really stuck with me, that instead of saying, look at me, how awesome I am, I resisted the temptation to do this and to do this, what if we just kept ourselves away from those temptations? You know, sometimes that's not possible, but sometimes we put ourselves in the midst of something that we know is not good for us. So Hosea's protecting Gomer in that situation. And doesn't God do that to us sometimes? Does he sometimes separate us and isolate us from those things that might be dangerous or bad from us? Because truly we are never fully isolated because we have him. And he's our source and he's our protection. And if there is something bad out there, I want God to isolate me from it. I want him to protect me from those outside influences that may tempt me to do something that isn't right, that isn't good, that isn't honoring to him. The first half of chapter two talks all about Israel as an unfaithful wife, but the second half talks all about how God loves them anyway. And then we move into chapter three and Hosea's hanging in there. He loves Gomer just as God loves Israel. And he... Hosea purchases her back, even though that would have been humiliating and embarrassing. And he does it because he loves her, just like God loved Israel and God loves us. He didn't do it because he had uh, somehow wronged Hosea or, she had, or Gomer or she had been misunderstood. It wasn't because anything had been done to her. It was only because of his absolute love for her. And God wanting that to be the illustration for Israel, that Israel had not been wronged, that even though God had been wronged, 
over and over again, he still loved them. He wanted them to see that he was faithful in this covenant love for them, regardless of their unfaithfulness and that his love would ultimately conquer. So he gives us this foretelling of Jesus in chapter three, verse five. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord, their God, and to David's descendant, their king. That's Jesus, guys. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. After this illustration in chapter four, Hosea brings us more prophetic poetry It's a really amazing book. Take some time to read it. But this poetry reveals God's position and he lays out, God lays out Israel's sins and the coming judgment. And there's nothing vague about it. Sometimes we worry that God's trying to jump out of something and surprise us with something that we did wrong. That's not the case. Over and over again, he makes sure, he makes a way for us to understand our circumstances, for us to know his heart And he does that again. He lays that out there. In my Bible, I don't know about yours, chapter four's title, so to speak, is the Lord's case against Israel. And if if the Lord has a case, you know it's a good one. You know that it is beyond reproach. But the people of Israel, they continue to offer sacrifices and sin offerings and perform religious duties along with some pagan worship things thrown in there. But the acts really meant nothing to them. It was something that they thought, okay, I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, we've got some prosperity, so I'm not going to rock the boat, but I'm just going to do this and go on my way. So, so in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, my people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Technically, they were following, I guess, most of the rules, um, but they had perverted them. They were not truly seeking God. Their hearts were not his. They were following the rules in the light and in the daytime and then doing a lot of nonsense in the background. God had provisioned ways for them to remember what he had done, but they were just going through the motions. Is that us sometimes? Do we do something that we know we should, but we're already thinking ahead to when it's done? Do we walk into church and the minute we walk through the doors, we're already going through where we're going to go to lunch or what my to-do list is afterwards? We do that. I know I do that. I'm getting ready to come up here and teach and I'm thinking, okay, how do I prep for a food pantry afterwards? It's a good thing that I'm getting ready for, but I need to be in the moment. Sometimes it's so hard to be in the moment. And if we recognize that, that's a great thing because then we can address it in our hearts. But if we recognize it and we ignore it, then we continue to move further and further from God and it gets to be easier and easier to do it. We we notice less and less that emptiness because we're filling it with other things. In chapter five, Hosea talks about how the leaders and the priests had led them astray by setting up altars and holy places and misleading the people into believing it was okay. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you leaders of Israel. Listen, you members of the royal family. And when they use royal family in this, they're talking about community and civic leaders. 
Judgment has been handed down against you, for you have led the people into a snare by worshiping the idols, the idols at Mizpah and Tabor. So think about this. These are people that they should have been able to trust, that they should have felt had their best interests at heart to keep them on the path with God. And they just used this worship and this idol worship, these priests and these leaders to benefit and prosper themselves. This is why we tell you, we want you to study the word. If you have questions, we want you to be able to share those questions. You know, we want you to be able to ask. You should never turn your spiritual identity, your spiritual health over to another person. Not a pastor, not a minister, no. It's you, it's between you and God. You come here to a church to learn and have other believers to discuss and ask questions and to study and to be joyful and to have people lift you up if you are struggling, but you do not hand that over because you need to know the word so you know when something's not right. You can feel that. God gives us what we need to know when something's not right. This chapter five continues, Hosea continues with the imagery of a prostitute leaving her husband. Why is this so powerful an illustration? And I think it's because in a situation like that, everyone bears the consequence of that sin. It's not just the sinner. We might be able to see when we're in sin and how it affects us, but I don't know if that's always enough to prompt us to turn away from that sin and repent. Our love for God should be enough, but sometimes we're clouded in that vision and it takes seeing what we're doing and how it affects our families and our friends. Because know how it affects them, it affects God that way too, it hurts him. And that's what he wanted them to be thinking about, to put themselves in that position of being able to see the pain that is caused in a situation like that and turn away from it? What about our lack of knowledge or understanding of our condition? God said that they didn't know him, but he has given us everything that we need to know him. He gave us Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. Again, he's given us each other. He's given us everything that we need to know him. As we move into chapter six, there might be a glimmer of hope, a call to repentance, but is it a true repentance? Do they take any ownership of their deeds? Or do they just wanna be protected from their enemies? Is it like a little kid who gets caught, and, uh, caught doing something they shouldn't do? I'm sorry, I watched a video. I was trying to find some, a video I could put up and there was a clip in one video that I really liked of a little boy in a field and his little sister, an even littler sister, is up here. And he's running. And before he knocks her to the ground, he yells out, I'm sorry. And then just plows into her and knocks her to the ground. He knew what he wanted to do, but he threw out an I'm sorry to try to protect himself from the consequences. A false repentance is no repentance at all. And God knows this. He shows us in Hosea 6, 4, Oh, Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Asked the Lord. For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. 
He knows. There's no faking God out. Chapter six ends with God wanting to restore the fortune of his people. It says that. But as we move into chapter seven, we see Israel's continuing their unrepentant sin and idolatry. And we're provided with a a pretty juicy list in chapter seven, verses three through 16. Adultery, drunkenness, carousing, murder, idolatry, lies, rebellion. Chapter eight, a lot there, but I'm just gonna give you my one sentence summary of chapter eight. They have planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind of God's judgment. That's not good. That's not good. In chapter nine, Hosea prophesies the punishment for Israel and reminds them that they are in fact the adulterous wife in this scenario. It's important for God. God wants us to understand what's happening. It's important that we understand the why because that can help us turn away from those things in the future. Hosea gives us a familiar image of a tree or a vine with dried up roots, no longer bearing fruit. And that should bring our minds right to um, the scripture in John 15, four, where I'm just gonna read this to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Time and again, we see the theme of trusting someone or something other than God causing humans to fall. Taking his gifts for granted, forgetting that everything that we have is from him. And no one's above this temptation. I I would want to believe when you know God that you're like, I'm above that temptation. But we see in the Bible, it's not the case. No one's above it, not the people, not the priests not the kings. In chapter 11, Hosea gives us a second illustration in case the adulterous wife wasn't working, if that wasn't touching hearts. Here's another illustration to work with, that of a rebellious son. And anybody who's a parent or has ever helped a parent knows what it is when you have a rebellious kid who just doesn't want to listen to anything, doesn't believe that you have anything to offer. But before we get too far into that, we get to verse eight. Before you even finish chapter 11, we're in verse eight and we see how good, uh, what a good father that God is and how his love for people is endless regardless of their behavior. Again, this one I'm just gonna read to you starting in verse eight. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zoboim? My heart is torn within me. This is God's heart is torn within him. And my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy. Thank you, Jesus. He is not a mere mortal because his compassion and love knows no bounds. God ensures we get the idea of the vastness of his forgiveness. We're doing a study in Chronicles in the, in the women's ministry, First and Second Chronicles. And we are in Second Chronicles now, we're talking about all of these battles that took place where kings were outnumbered and they were surrounded and the odds were not in their favor. It looked bad and they cried out to God and God gave them victory. Now, unfortunately, 
that didn't mean that those kings always continued forward in that posture of calling out to God. But he showed them that if you call out, he answers. And I think the very bleakness of the situation is something that shows us the very vastness and the bigness of God when he can do something that is so impossible and feel something that is so impossible for us. There are heavy words in chapters 12 and 13 reminding Israel of their history of forgetting the Lord. And we know that sadly, ultimately, Israel did not listen to Hosea and they were sent into exile. Again, read 2 Kings to get that whole story, get more of that story. But God, again, as we've seen in the past, is so amazing, he doesn't want, he wants to discipline us. He wants to let us know he needs to say those hard words, but he doesn't want to leave us in despair. He doesn't want to leave us in despair. We get into chapter 14 where God promises healing for the repentant, even after all that had happened and all he knew was gonna happen because he's God. Worship team, you can start coming on up. So in 14, starting in verse four, the Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars in Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will again live under my shade. They will flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. Oh, Israel, stay away from idols. I am the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I am like a tree that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. Now, if somehow you hear this and none of this resonates as a message that is still for us today. Look at verse nine. This gives us the heads up that this lesson is timeless. Verse nine reads, let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right and righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. So grab your communion elements. Remember, God understands if you don't have the perfect, uh, perfect things laying around you, use what you have. God wants to see your heart. God wants you to be in the moment. This is something, as we read through this, this is something that they had difficulty with. They had difficulty being in the moment. Don't be thinking about what's about to happen. Think about what we're about to do right now, what this means. Make it mean something. Let us pray that for that wisdom and that discernment to stay on the paths of the Lord. So as we pull out this communion wafer, again, it means something. This represents Jesus's broken body, what he did for us, knowing that we were gonna fall short time and time again. 
This represents Jesus' blood, the cleansing blood of Jesus that takes every mistake that we ever made, every act of faithlessness, every act of faithlessness, every act of anger, every act of self-righteousness, and it cleanses us. We just need to ask for that forgiveness and thank you, Jesus, you give it. So my prayer for you guys today is that you can spend more of your time in that moment with Jesus, with your Savior. That you can accept that at times He is going to protect you and you may not understand why. But if you ask Him, if you call out to Him, if you cry out to Him, He will answer you. He is always faithful. He is always faithful. Amen. We love you guys.
Presence and change. 